may be seated. Our sermon text today is Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24. We're going to jump right into things and not waste any time, but let us first go before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Speak to us, not because we deserve it, not because we are holier than other people, not because we are smarter than other people, not because we are harder working or in some way more deserving than other people, but speak to us by your grace, according to your mercy, that we might be changed. Give us new life in Christ Jesus, a new heart in which he might dwell, and give us a new vision of the world, one that sees things the way you see them, one that enables us to love others and love you just as you have loved us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our sermon text today is Galatians 1, verses 11 to 24, though these are the words of the Apostle Paul, this is the inspired word of God. Follow along as I read. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, as we look to what Paul had to say to the Galatians in today's text, I find it interesting that he begins his, his train of thought uh, in, in a specific place here. He's dispensed with all of the introductions and and as we covered last week, he's, 
He's moved past his astonishment that they have so quickly rejected the gospel that he had proclaimed and turning to another gospel. And in verse 11, he says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now, they already knew this, of course. They already knew this because he had told them this before. He had proclaimed it to them. They knew his history, his story, where he had been, what he had done, how he had come by this truth of the gospel and how he had proclaimed it to them. But they were acting as if they did not know. Boy, that can be frustrating, can't it? Have you ever done that? Have you ever shared uh, something with somebody perhaps? You know, you had some instructions for them. Okay, I'm leaving, but, but after I leave, I need you to do A and B and C. And when I come back, that'll be all done, right? Yeah, okay, great. And you leave and you come back and neither A nor B nor C have been done. Oh, it's frustrating, right? You know, you, you, you go about whatever you're doing. You, you, you thought you had told them this. You were very plain, very clear, very direct. And yet it's as if they didn't hear you at all. That's how Paul must have felt here because that's what he had done. He had very clearly and directly given them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet they were wavering on it here. They, they didn't seem to remember what he had told them. And yet, notice that Paul's affection for them does not wane even in the midst of his very right frustration. I would have you know, brothers, he says, he realizes, he remembers, he, he wants to make sure that they realize that he remembers. That they are his brothers in the faith. This is a controlling truth that we should remember today, especially as we prepare to come to the Lord's table in just a few moments. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ, bound together in one body, by one God, through his one spirit. Let us remember that today. And Paul says to them, Brothers, I did not receive this gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying this, this isn't something that got lost in translation somewhere, right? This isn't something like, like the old telephone game, right? Where you whisper in somebody's ear and they whisper in somebody's ear and they whisper in somebody's ear and they whisper in somebody's ear and it gets all the way around the circle and you end up with a totally different message than you start out with, right? He says, no, I got this straight from the horse's mouth. Right? If we can be so indelicate as to call Jesus the horse, right? He said, this is from the Lord. Paul wants them to remember and he wants you and me to remember, as Philip Ryken put it, the gospel is not man's good news about God. It is God's good news for man. I'm going to say that again. The gospel is not man's good news about God. It is God's good news for man. And because that's true, the gospel reminds us two things that I want to look at today. First of all, that our past is irrelevant. And then secondly, our God is ultimate. First of all, our past is irrelevant. What I mean by that is, is in terms of, first off, our 
our bad works. We all have sins in our past. We all have things that we're ashamed of. All, we all have things we ought to be ashamed of anyway, even, even if we perhaps are, are so, so desensitized to our own sin that we are shameless. But we ought to be shamed by the sinful actions that are in our past. And sometimes you even hear stories of people who, who you maybe share the truth of the gospel with or you share some, some thoughts about God and his forgiveness and they say, no, you, you don't know, you, you wouldn't understand. I've done so much. I've done this horrible thing in my past. There's no way God could forgive me, perhaps they think. They think that they've done things that would disqualify them from being recipients of God's love. How could he ever forgive them. Perhaps you're such a person as you sit there today. Perhaps you're sitting in the pew today thinking, I really don't know if God ever could forgive me because of the sin that's in my life, because of those things that I've done. If you are such a person, let me encourage you to consider the example of the Apostle Paul. In verse 13, he says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And the tenses of the verbs here in, in the Greek original is, are such that, that he makes it very clear that this wasn't just like a, a one-time thing, right? He didn't just slip up once and do this. Right? He's not saying, there was that one time I, I persecuted the church. That's not what he's saying at all. It's, it's actually a sense that it was an ongoing thing. I was persecuting the church violently and trying to destroy it, is what he's saying. This was an ongoing sense. It was a, a pattern of life, not just a little slip-up, but a, but a violent, evil history. And that's why a couple weeks ago we, we read in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that, uh, that, that, that Paul... Uh, not actually, it wasn't 1 Corinthians 15... Um, we, we just read, I can't even remember now, I'm losing my, I'm losing my train of thought here, uh, but, but, but how Paul saw himself as the least of the apostles and unworthy to be called an apostle because he had persecuted the church. Acts 22 actually says, says I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brethren and I, I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. We see that, that what Paul was doing back in the days when he was Saul, of course, was no minor deal. He was, he was going to homes where people were trusting in the Lord, where they were proclaiming the truth of their faith in Christ Jesus, and he was ripping them from their homes. He was, he was putting them in chains and dragging them off to be punished, even to the point where they might be martyred at times. Whatever you have done, it is not worse than what he did. Remember what Jesus said to him when he met him on that road to Damascus. The risen Lord says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He didn't say, why do you persecute my church? He says, why do you persecute me? Because Jesus so identifies with his church that he can rightly say that as Saul persecuted the church of God, he was actually persecuting him. And so it was that, that we can 
essentially see that, that as he murdered the church's members, he was essentially murdering Jesus. You think your sin is bad? Have you ever murdered the Son of God? No matter what you've done, your sins aren't worse than his were. But by the same token, no matter what you've done, your sins are just as bad as his were. And I say that because it was ultimately for our sins that Jesus died. In a very real sense, it is we who murdered the Son of God. Just this past Friday was the 350th anniversary of the death of the Dutch artist Rembrandt. And in his painting, The Raising of the Cross, which is a picture of Jesus nailed to the cross and the cross being raised up that he might be crucified upon it. It's interesting to note that as Rembrandt painted this famous painting, he painted himself into it. He is one of the people lifting up the cross, raising it so that the Son of God might die upon it. And and what's being communicated there is Rembrandt is seeing himself as being one who has put Christ to death, who has murdered him, who has crucified him on the cross because he realized that it was his sins that caused Jesus to die on that cross. It's the same sense that's given to us by, by Stuart Townend in his modern hymn that he wrote, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Behold, the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. You see, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, he signaled the fact that no matter how great our debt was, no matter how righteous and just the penalty of our sin was, no matter how horrible and great that debt was, it was paid in full. There was no debt left to be paid. Jesus had paid the entire thing. All of our bad works, all of our sin, all of our evil is irrelevant to the saving power of the gospel. What a good, what good news that is for us. But it's not just our bad works that are irrelevant. It's also our good works. What I mean by that is this. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. In Acts 22, he mentions, I am a Jew born of, in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God is all you are this day. Basically, what he's saying is, is he came from the churchiest of families, right? He had, he had been brought up in the church, and he had, he had attended the best seminary, and he had learned all the things he was supposed to learn. He had perfect church attendance. He was there every Sunday, or Saturday, as the case might be. He memorized all the Bible verses more than anybody else. He 
knew it all. He was doing everything right. He was doing all the good deeds that he should have done. Philippians 3 points us to the fact that, that if anyone thought they had reason for confidence in the flesh, he had more. He was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees who had, who had followed all the ceremonies of the law. With his pedigree, his training, his piety, he had as much reason as anybody to be confident in himself. But none of these things, none of these things actually in the end did any good. And nothing we can do is going to make us holy before God as well. For if we are looking to our own deeds, our own works, our own actions to make us right before God, then we are like those of whom the prophet Isaiah speaks when he says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, the mindset of man-made work-centered religion is I obey, therefore I'm accepted, right? I, I do enough good stuff, therefore God loves me. That's what the mindset is of the man-centered, works-centered religion. But the gospel is completely opposite. Instead of saying, instead of saying that, that I obey, therefore I am accepted, the gospel proclaims I am treasured by God. I am loved by God. Therefore, I'll obey. You see, it, it reverses the order altogether. It's not a matter of his love coming to us because we have done so much, but it's rather a matter of him loving us in spite of whatever we've done, and therefore we want to do good works. But, but see, if we're looking to our good works to make us right, those are deeds that we need to repent of as well, just as much as we need to repent of our sinful, evil works. And all of this is to remind me that it's not about me. It's, it's not about me. That leads us to the second point. Our God is ultimate. Our God is ultimate. First, in that his will is sovereign. Verse 15 shows us this in two places. One, but, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, literally, he set me apart from my mother's womb. What a wonderful, wonderful truth there. And I'm reminded of Psalm 139, which tells us, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Or Psalm 22, where we read, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. What a wonderful thing to realize when we consider a baby in the womb. That not only is this baby one who has identity, who has personhood is one who for whom God already has a plan God God already has has developed a plan for us when we are in our mother's womb and for Paul that plan was that he would be set apart that he would be marked out as the one who ultimately would bring the gospel to the Gentiles and we should be forever thankful for that because we are among those who have ultimately received that gospel 
according to the plan of God. He had set him apart before he was born for that very purpose. And you know what? When you were in your mother's womb, God had a plan for you as well. That plan was multifaceted. But one part of it, at least, was that you would be here today hearing the gospel of grace, the gospel that Jesus has died for your sins, that you might believe in him, that you might trust in him, that you might depend upon him, and that you might know his grace. That's the second place we see the sovereign will of God here in verse 15, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace not who called me because I was so holy not who called me because I was so smart or so accomplished or so worthy or so anything else no he called me by his grace that's how it was for Paul and he realized it Even though he had all this stuff in his background, he had done all these things, none of those were what earned him a right to respond to the gospel, to be called of God, right? God did it by his grace. And that grace is what's needed for us to respond to the gospel. We can't respond to it favorably without God's grace. Surely Paul had heard the message of the gospel many times before, right? Because he's he's dragging these people out of their homes and he's, he's telling them, telling them, just recant. Recant what you're saying about Jesus. Just just give up that faith and blaspheme him. And I'll let you go. You'll be fine. And they're refusing to do it. And they're saying they're standing on the truth that Jesus died for their sins, that he is the son of God who came and died for their sins and has risen again and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, for once he shall come to judge the living and the dead and they will not budge from this truth. And Paul drags them off and has them killed. You see, he had heard the gospel before, but he never responded to it because he had not yet been called by God, by his grace, to respond. But once he had been called by the grace of God to respond, then he couldn't help but. And if you trust in Christ, know this, the same is true of you. If you trust in Christ, it's not because of you, it's because of him. And his... Sovereign will. Our God is ultimate. His will is sovereign. And that's the first way in which our God is ultimate. But the second is this. His glory is the goal. Verse 16. I did not immediately consult with anyone, says Paul as he went up. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went up away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul's adversaries that were criticizing him, remember he's, he's being criticized by these people who are saying he's, he's not a, a real apostle or whatever. They're, they're basically criticizing him because they're from the mother church in Jerusalem. And, and they're saying, wait, he, he didn't come here and get his credentials validated by us. He, he didn't come here and go through the proper channels to get ordained as an apostle, as it were. Right? He, he didn't take the steps that we say he's supposed to take. They were more concerned about their status and their place and him following their rules than they were concerned about the glory of God at first anyway. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We can be guilty of it. We, we 
have a natural result of believing uh, any other gospel will lead us in this way where we, we are focused on our own glory. But the goal of the gospel always must be the glory of God. Man-made religion will always point to the glorifying of man, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, will always point to the glory of God. And if our faith rest wholly on Jesus, then we can truly rest indeed. I saw just this week a quote from uh, somebody who was mentioning that it's interesting how you look to man-made religions and he pointed to Buddha's dying words which were strive without ceasing. Right? That makes sense because the whole idea is you need to work, right? You need to work, 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 work. Keep working to the very end. Strive without ceasing were Buddha's final words. Jesus' final words were, it is finished. Give me Jesus, right? Give me Jesus. He has accomplished it already. It's not our doing, it's his doing. And so let us rest in him and give him all the glory. Paul isn't concerned about building his own thing. He's not concerned about gaining his own glory. And yet he realizes here that he is one who, though he was not sent out by the church in Jerusalem, kind of the, the mother church, that he is still connected to them. One church, one body, with one spirit dwelling in us. So, verse 18 tells us after three years, he went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. The word visit there carries the connotation, actually, of, of receiving a report. The idea is he, he went up to Peter and, and said, Peter, tell me more about your time with Jesus. Tell me more of what it was like to be with him during those three years you spent with him. Tell me more about what it was like to see him crucified and to see him raised. Tell me more about your experiences. And he says, and he saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. And it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about how Jesus lived and died and, and rose again, and it says he appeared to Peter and to James and to the other apostles and, and to more than 500. It's interesting that he mentions Peter and James by name. And here we see in this passage that they were the two that he actually spoke to. They clearly had told him about their time with the risen Lord. And Paul kind of takes a, a legal oath, right? He says, in, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. It's, it's like, I swear I'm telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Acts 15, 41 tells us that he strengthened the churches there. He says, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, right? He wasn't sent by them, he's saying. This was still, I, I was going out, not sent by them. But they did hear this much about it. They heard it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And what did they do? They glorified God because of me. You see, because ultimately in the end, they realized too, 
It's God's glory that is ultimate. What a wonderful truth that is to come to realize. Let us all come to that fact. Let us realize that it's God's glory that's ultimate, not our own. That, that we can let go of our resentments and our bitterness and, and even our very righteous anger if we rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we saw this this past week in the example of Brant Jean, brother, 18-year-old brother of Botham Jean, who was, had been shot by Amanda Geiger, killed in his own apartment. She was convicted of his murder. And then Brant Jean, 18 years old, speaking to the convicted murderer of his brother, told her that he forgave her and that he wanted the best for her and the best for her would be to give her life to Christ Jesus. And then he hugged her. He opened up his arms and he hugged her. Can you imagine hugging the murderer of your brother? He clearly understood the gospel at a deeper level than many of us do, and frankly, I think that perhaps I would have even in that moment. He understood what we read about earlier in our unison scripture reading. He who is forgiven much loves much. And so he was able to open his arms in forgiveness to one who frankly did not deserve his forgiveness but only deserved just condemnation. And I thought, what a picture of what Christ has done for us. He has opened up his arms to us in forgiveness. Though we have committed the greatest of atrocities against him. And not only was he willing to forgive us, but he was willing to pay the debt that we owed that is why we come to this table. We come to this table to remember that fact, to proclaim that fact to ourselves and to one another and even to the world that Christ Jesus has died for our sins. And therefore, we will love him and love one another. For whenever we eat or drink, this table we proclaim the death of the Lord that's what Paul wrote isn't it for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats 
and drinks judgment on himself. The Lord is giving himself to us in this meal. He wants us to realize that indeed he has died for our sins and that should change who we are. It should cause us to love one another in the way he has loved us. Let us examine our hearts not that we might be able to declare ourselves perfect and worthy of coming to the table. No, for none of us would be worthy if it's our own holiness that made us worthy. Let us be made worthy in that we realize our sin and we turn to Christ Jesus for forgiveness and we rest in the forgiveness that only he can give and in turn love him and love our neighbor. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you for the great gift of your Son, who by your grace died for our sins. We thank you for the great gift of faith that you have given us through your Spirit working in our hearts. And we thank you for the great gift of the church that we might live with one another and love one another even as you have loved us. We thank you now for the great gift of this table and pray that as we partake of it by your grace you might strengthen our faith and cause us to trust in you all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name.